Welcome to Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman. I'm here with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. We're about to continue our greatest album of all time tournament. We're about to start round two of the 1960s and we, bought, we got a bunch of good matchups for you. Again, the seedings here are from the Best Ever Albums website, but we, uh, we picked the actual albums that we're including ourselves. And, and again, only one, uh, one album per artist. We're going to head right into the matchups. The that, first... that, clip is, that clip is like Bob Dylan giving birth to the future of music. That's what that, that's what that sounds like. Well said. Well said. Speaking of birthing uh, a lot of stuff, we got two albums here. Uh, back, well, I think you could say that pretty much about every album in this bracket almost. But uh, we'll get into each one. And we'll start with number one. Revolver by the Beatles versus number nine, Electric Ladyland by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Revolver. Again, it's going against Electric Ladyland by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. going to talk about Revolver. Revolver is one of the Beatles' strangest and most beloved albums. This was after they discovered Bob Dylan, Eastern Mysticism, and Acid, and it's their most psychedelic album, with John Lennon's Acid Visions dominating trippy songs like I'm Only Sleeping and Tomorrow Never Knows. Even the album cover, I think done by a band friend and later John Lennon's bass player, Klaus Vorman, is trippy and cool. Thank <laughs> you. 
As you can hear, Revolver has its own distinctive flavor, and it proved that when properly conceived, albums could be greater than the sum of their parts, but what great parts it had as well. We'll get Ringo out of the way first, and know that he gets one of his most memorable showcases here in Yellow Submarine, essentially a catchy children's song that more than anything is a tour de force from producer George Martin. George Harrison takes on an increased role by penning three songs, led by the catchy, clever rocker Taxman, though interestingly enough, that's Paul, not George, who plays what's probably one of the band's most renowned guitar solos. But speaking of George guitar playing, has a guitar tone ever sounded better than on songs like Anya Burke could sing and She Said, She Said? Those are some of the great rock songs with that distinct Lennon imprint, but Paul McCartney penned several classics as well, such as the lonely Eleanor Rigby, which you heard in our intro, which nods to strings laid in classical music. It sounds like a classical song. Uh, on a side note, you know, though, though this is clearly more a Paul song than a John song, John has claimed to have written a fair amount of the lyrics to Eleanor Rigby, which uh, Paul disagrees with. And uh, most people who were there seem to back up Paul's version of events. Uh, there aren't many song credit disagreements on record like that between uh, Paul and John, but... Uh, this is one song where who did what isn't 100% clear. Elsewhere, the propulsive horn push of Got to Get You Into My Life further showed off Paul's mastery of pop ornaments. And Paul also penned the feel good pop of Good Day Sunshine and the superb ballads for no one and here, there, and everywhere, both of which show what a phenomenal singer he was. Uh, the band had so much fun messing around in the studio on this one that they then stopped touring altogether believing that this is where their future lies. One can hardly argue with the results. You know, the Beatles recorded several subsequent masterpieces in the studio, including their most famous album, Sgt. Pepper's, but they never made an album better than Revolver. What do you guys think? So a couple things. I think um, when I was listening to it again today for God knows how many of the how many of time, it did strike me that every time I listen to Revolver, I pick up on something new. Like, for example, in Taxman, which, yes, probably has one of the Beatles' best guitar solos also, that there, everyone, I think everyone knows the reason they wrote Taxman was because they were trying to escape oppressive taxes in the UK, which eventually drove the Rolling Stones to France when they, uh, when they recorded Exile on Main Street as well. But the, the Beatles were explicit. If you hear some of like the undertones, they actually talk about two of the British prime ministers that are that are taxing them in it. So very, you know, very interesting. I don't know that I ever picked up on that before, maybe because I was watching The Crown with Karina over the last uh, couple of months, I picked up on that. Um, and with the song that we opened with, with Eleanor Rigby, I've always known this, but it always strikes me that this is on a, a rock album by the most popular rock band on the planet, and yet it's entirely strings. It's, it's like a classical song, like you said. I mean, I think it uses a double string quartet to do all the instrumentation. And yet it's an unbelievably beautiful, heartbreaking song on a rock album. I would maybe dispute Scott's assertion that they've never made a better album after Revolver. I, I think, 
both Scott and Keith know, I, I go back and forth of what my favorite Beatles album is between this, Abbey Road, Sgt. Pepper, and and sometimes even- They're all ties. They're not better though. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, this, this does change rock and roll. I mean, you've got Eastern, uh, you've got the you've got sitar in it. You've got things that you've never heard on a rock album before. And again, it would be one thing if it was by an experimental band, but it wasn't. It was by the biggest band that the world had probably ever seen and potentially ever would see. And now on the touring piece, I also remember reading that part of the reason why they stopped touring is because the, uh, during their last tour in the United States, the sound quality was so bad they couldn't hear each other. And so they were upset that it didn't sound as good. And particularly as their songs got deeper and more complex and more studio produced, they didn't think that they'd ever be able to do anything like they could on the road live. So they just stopped and it's a shame because it probably would have gotten better for them and they would have been able to replicate that as we see in shows now all the time. And yet we've lost that. I don't think it's that they sounded bad, is that they just couldn't hear themselves over all the screen girls that were going nuts over them. So yeah, good point. The Be the Beatles were like one direction transitioning into Radiohead, like <laughs> in, in in the course of like a couple albums. That's no in, in some ways that's true, right? They started out as sort of this, yeah, you know, sort of sort of boy band, you know. Teen heart the heartthrob, and then song was you know, starting started transitioning. Rubber Soul started transitioning into something different for music, and then Revolver was sort of the next evolution of of the Beatles into you know again piggy piggybacking off of sort of where the decade was moving with Dylan, with sort of the competition with the Beach Boys. You know, sort of in simultaneous. It's, it's. I mean, the '60s is really amazing. Like, I, I don't associate as close to the '60s generally as I do with sort of the later, the later decades. And even you know, in, in the first round, you know, some of the bands didn't um, don't resonate with me. But you know, as you get into round two of the '60s, you really see where everything that came after like starts, right? And and Revolver is part of that, um, part of that sort of transformation of music from sort of, you know, the the what happened before that to what happens after that, and um, you know, Revolver is sort of the Beatles maturing, and and maybe that's partly because they're doing more um, opium, you know, opioids and, <laughs> and LSD and. LSD and you know, it's sort of a contrast between, you know, them and, and Jimmy and sort of what's, you know, sort of what's fueling the creativity. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk more about the Beatles in, in future um, in future podcasts. Not to, I don't know if Scott gave away, gave that away yet, but, um, you know, this is, this is a, this is a band, you know, again, to Scott's point, this is, arguably the the greatest band that ever existed you know pete you know transitioning into what they ultimately were it's probably you know to some extent this is sort of you know george is coming into his own as a songwriter he probably isn't you know I, he gets i think he gets even better sort of later on and um but you know this is that's what the beatles are such a force because they've got you know three 
really genius, <laughs> um, you know, songwriters uh, who could all, you know, play. Not to, no right disrespect now. to the fourth guy and the fifth, you know, and the fifth guy who was in the booth, um, who, rap, you know, who probably brings maybe more to the table than the fourth guy. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, this is definitely one of those uh, studio instrument albums that we've talked about, and definitely George Martin played a major role as along with uh, engineer Joff Emmerich. Uh, so they deserve a lot of credit as well. I would say that, you know, they, they I think Rubber, Rubber Soul really started to, to jump in class even before we Yeah, yeah, Rubber Soul, I think it's right. To the next level. Rubber Soul changes sort of the dynamics of like out what albums are meant to be. Like again, Rubber Soul and then Dylan, and then Dylan um, were sort of those like transitional moments for rock to, you know, like, I think led to right like Revolver is getting deeper lyrically than what had the Beatles had done before and that's sort of that's sort of what where Revolver is sort of taking sort of taking I think they took a lot of good drugs too (laughs) nice segue into Jimmy into Jimmy yep about Jimmy all right uh we're going to talk about Electric Ladyland now, another phenomenal album. Uh, this was the last Jimi Hendrix Experience album and, and the last studio album released during his lifetime. Uh, it was a sprawling double album on vinyl, though, of course, on c- CD. It was a single 75-minute CD. Uh, also, Jimmy was more involved in the production process than previously. Uh, again, this is another one of those uh, studio's instrument albums that, that we've talked about, like Revolver. Uh, you know, though, of course, uh, Jimmy's guitar playing is, is always front and center. Well, another interesting thing about Electric Ladyland is that it, it contains uh, quite a few notable guest appearances from the likes of Steve Winwood, Jack Cassidy, Buddy Miles, Dave Mason, and Al Cooper. Uh, as previously mentioned in round one, we, we could have included any of the three Jimi Hendrix Experience albums. In fact, are you experienced? is probably uh, the more obvious pick. Uh, but though Electric Ladyland is maybe the most hit or miss experience album on a song for song basis, it's the most adventurous, it has the highest peaks, and it's the one where I'm most apt to discover new things, you know, even after many, many listens. Uh, I've said that about prior albums like The Downward Spiral, and that's the case with Electric Ladyland as well. As for the uh, the songs, uh, let me peek into Spotify here to, to take a quick look. Uh, I'll note some some highlights. Uh, let's see. Uh, and the Gods Made Love, uh, that begins the album with a suitably far out intro, kind of serving the same purpose as EXP had for Axis. Uh, the Soulful Have You Ever Been to Electric Ladyland? is an obvious nod to Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, and it's an excellent tribute, um, featuring maybe his best vocal performance. Uh, in fact, Jimmy was never a big fan of his vocals, but after this take, he, he exulted. I can sing, I can sing. Uh, so he was pretty uh, pleased with with that one. Uh, then you have the blistering, catchy funk rock of Crosstown Traffic, which is you know, one of the most famous and straightforward tracks here. Everyone should know that one from classic rock radio. Mm-hmm. 
straight to you in that one. Uh, continuing, let me see here. Uh, we have the largely improvised 16-minute voodoo child. Uh, granted, it's probably a few minutes too long, uh, but this epic blues jam featuring Jefferson Airplane's Jack Cassidy and, and traffic Steve Winwood is definitely worth indulging due to its explosive incendiary piece. Uh, now, plus the success of this song and other collaborations such as Al Cooper's Super Session made the all-star jam a fashionable fixture on the rock scene. Uh, previously, those kind of jams had mostly just been done by jazz musicians. Uh, as for other highlights, Gypsy Eyes is great groove-oriented hard rock, while the brilliant burning of the Midnight Land delivers shimmering psychedelia with harpsichord, wah guitar, and the soulful harmonies by the vocal group, The Sweet Inspirations, with, uh, I believe, Whitney Houston's mom is, uh, is, is one of the singers there. Uh, why am I I'm blanking out on a name? But I'll, I guess I'll put it in the notes to the episode. I, I can't remember it. Uh, anyway, uh, Rainy Day Dream Away is, is one of Jimmy's best mellower songs, while the symphonic, classically influenced 1983, A Merman I Should Turn to Be, um, that's another indulgent, yet often brilliant, near 14-minute set piece, uh, whose watery, fantastical, incandescent peak show Hendrix to be a true original. Again, it could be tightened up a bit or be brought into clearer focus, no, but there's a real magic at work here. And, and this imaginative song is a good example of why Hendrix, though oft imitated, has never been equal. Jimi Hendrix, man. Another standout track is House Burning Down, one of Hendrix's most overtly political tracks that's also a great guitar workout. Its transition into All Along the Watchtower is simply flawless. And what about Watchtower, which you heard in the intro here? You know, what can you say? Uh, this is it's just the best Bob Dylan cover song ever, and maybe the best cover song ever, period. Um, with arguably his most famous guitar solo and one of his best vocals too. Uh, Dylan himself was so touched and impressed by this version that in subsequent concerts, he played the Hendrix arrangement in tribute to Jimmy. Anyway, last but certainly not least is the ferocious hard funk of Voodoo Child. It's just another signature track that's Jimmy at his absolute heaviest. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of details there, maybe too much. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a great album. I love it. I didn't want to shortchange uh, some of my favorite songs there. Uh, so as you can tell, it's just an amazing record. Uh, 
it's just not quite as amazing as Revolver. And I think these guys uh, agree with me on that. I do agree. And it's funny, even when we started this, having listened to albums multiple times, but probably Electric Ladyland the least, I, um, I did listen to it again in preparation for this round. And yeah, even though Revolver is going to go ahead, agree with you that Electric Land is probably his best and most varied and most most experimental. I also, I was saying this to Keith actually even last night that I'm, I'm astounded in some of it how bluesy some of the tracks are, right? And how there's, even though we think of Jimmy as a guitar virtuoso and, and electric guitar and funk, a lot of this is still grounded in blues and a lot of it is still grounded in in him picking up that and then transforming it. Yeah, you have Merman and you've got um, Hoodoo Child, he's long, as you said, Scott, maybe sometimes a little too long, but long jam. Some of these are really tight blues songs. And again, I think that Electric Ladyland is one that rewards frequent re-listens, maybe after a little bit of uh, little bit of downtime and thinking beforehand, because you always pick up something new in it. Um, and you know, like a lot of these artists, unfortunately, who passed before their time, it does make you think, where was he gonna go next, right? If you even trace his arc just from, are you experienced to this? And you can see the growth and, and change, like what was gonna happen next, you know? And when, when I think about a genre of music from the 70s that I particularly love, which is funk, and you can see its beginnings in Jimmy and you just wonder like, what would it have been like if he was still there doing it and where would he be taking it, so. Definitely worth listening to multiple times to be able to pick up on some of these nuances. You, you do get a little bit of a taste of, with the band the Gypsies album, yes. which was his subsequent live album yeah. with, with another band. I mentioned Buddy Miles guessing on this. He was in Band of Gypsies as well, along with his, uh, his uh, army buddy, uh, Buddy Cox on bass. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, they were different. They were more funk, definitely. And they were going in that direction, like Funkadelic, you know, maybe. Uh, but yeah, you don't know. There's all these rumors and he was going to meet up with Miles Davis and do something. So it's one of those what ifs, right? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Li listening to this, I my reaction is almost like, Scott, we got it wrong when we said Jeff Buckley was the greatest loss. And it's not because... Yeah, Hendrix left us with more, but I think you can. I think he's probably the most singular talent that's ever lived <laughs> in music history. I mean, there's just like when you hear uh, Electric Ladyland, you just like there's a there's a genius that comes like a natural genius that comes through in what you're hearing that is really on And this match, it's funny because this matchup is almost like the two, um, like the, you've got on one hand, the greatest like individual talent that's ever lived. And on the other hand, you've got the greatest collective talent that's ever lived. And they're matched up against each other. And really, I don't like, if you look down the, the lists or across the, there's, there's no, there's not, to me, there's nothing that really compares to that in terms of like individual talent and, and collective talent in, in, in a group like electric Ladyland plays like a, almost like a live improvisational album right where where revolver is you know these songs that are expertly crafted and and it's almost like you know jimmy's like 
all right, let's do this. And just, you know, starts riffing and, you know, the band's playing with him and, you know, and this magical stuff comes out. And again, it is sort of like the, 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 the linchpins to the album are the sort of the, the big pieces, right? Voodoo Child and uh, Merman and, and then, you know, and then the end of the album with the two sort of, um, you know, iconic, like really iconic Jimmy classics. But, you know, when you listen to the whole thing, it's sort of, you know, you're experiencing a Jimmy live, con like Jimmy live riffing and, and you know, you're there, you know, you know, the Revolver is more like this trippy, this trippy album and, and there's there's drugs underlying both of them, and you know uh, you know electrical Land feels more like you know the alcohol fueled version of <laughs> of you know the you know drug induced um, you know musical you know sort of experience over time. Um, but yeah, Revolver belongs in the next round. Just there is you know electrical Land is just a, it's it is a great overall listen and you do get a sense of there's sort of a sense of loss in terms of you know what um jimmy left on the table when when he died well said all around uh, just want to add a uh, mitch mitchell's one of my all-time favorite drummers so i think he's great on this album um it only has three radio tracks like you said uh you know crosstown traffic uh, watchtower and voodoo child so it's most of this album is unfamiliar to the public at large unless you listen to this album, which I think makes it even more, makes me even more glad that, that we picked it as, as a Jimmy album. And, uh, oh. you know, that's one of the things about Revolver too. Like Revolver is not the radio track Beatles album, right? I mean, do you, 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 of course you have the Beatles hits from, yeah. you have the radio hits from Revolver, but, but top to bottom, it's, you know, more than half are not, you know, the, the more familiar Beatles songs, for sure. I mean, it's hard to call anything a deep track by the Beatles, but yeah, but it, like but these it, songs aren't on the Red album. They're not on the Blue album. They're not on, on the, you know, the number one collection. So, and they're yeah, not, the, they're not, they're not making top, you know, the, 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 they're just not the, the ones that you immediately recognize as a, you know, the general public's going to immediately recognize unless you're, the Beatles, you know, the Beatles story. Yeah, and then along the Watchtower was Jimmy's only top 20 hit in the U.S., so technically he was a one-hit wonder. <laughs> All right, the next matchup is King Crimson, the number five seed within the core of the Crimson King, and Bob Dylan, the number four seed with Highway 61 Revisited.
That was Queen Jean, approximately uh, a real personal favorite. I know my brother loves it as well. That was Bob Dylan. Again, they're going against King Crimson in the court of the Crimson King. Twenty-first century schizoid man, maybe the first prog metal song, maybe the first prog album in general. Uh, you could call this album basically ground zero for progressive rock. You know, there 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 are other ones you could make a case for, maybe like uh, the first album by the Nice, uh, Keith Emerson's first ELP band. But uh, you know, this album it usually is the one credited for that. It's so you know, it's an album of unquestionable importance uh, but regardless of that it's an album I still listen to you know fairly frequently because it's just damn good uh, this is basically the first of their many classic lineups they've had so many lineups over the years and uh, I'd say there's, there's probably three classic lineups so I won't get into all that now but uh, the main players here were, were obviously Robert Fripp who is the main guy was in every incarnation of the band. Greg Lake, who is the singer and guitar player. Uh, well, not the lead guitar player, that was Fripp, but he also played guitar and bass. And uh, Michael Giles, I, I think his drumming on this album is great. Um, then you have uh, Ian McDonald. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, he was like a multi multi-instrumentalist. He played a whole bunch of instruments on the album. He was later in Foreigner. Hard to believe, considering how different the two bands are. And and then you have lyricist uh, Peter Sinfeld, I believe his name was. Uh, so just a great uh, lineup. Uh, that 21st century schizoid man is just so explosive and, and dramatic. And, and I'm sure these guys will talk about Kanye West at some point, but I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> um, the... Uh, you know, it's symphonic kind of prog. It's, it could be really heavy, owed as much as jazz to rock also. Very challenging music. Uh, you know, a lot of solo sections like any good prog album. And, you know, a lot of great group interplay as well. It's just a tremendous album. Um, I would say, you know, it, it really is mostly for me about about the three epic tracks that, that are the great tracks on the album. We talked a little bit about Moonchild in the first episode, how that was kind of filler. I Talk to the Wind is, is uh, you know, it's a good song as well. But uh, really, it's about 21st century schizoid man and uh, the title track. And, and then there's Epitaph, which is uh, one of the all-time epic ballads. Uh, 
you know, that lush symphonic sound and uh, which is kind of equal parts folk and classical music and, and just Greg Lake, I think it's his best vocal ever. So uh, cue it up, Larry, let's hear it. <laughs> track there uh, and again the album ends with, with just an, another epic symphonic prog rock masterpiece with the title track uh, so all in all you have three fantastic epic length songs uh, one really good song and and one that I I kind of tend to skip but uh, the album is, is certainly more than worthy of its classic status uh, and again we got to talk about that album cover right I mean classic album cover creepy as hell and it really kind of, it matches the music, which is a totally cool thing. Uh, so on to Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, there's so much we could say about this album. I mean, it, it kind of changed music. Uh, Bob, he first went electric on, on the prior album, Bringing It All Back Home on side one. But really, this album took that to the next level, and it kind of established him once and for all is, is a great rocker as well as a, a folky, uh, you know, has moody atmospheric songs like Ballad of the Thin Man and Desolation Row, uh, the 11 minute, you know, finale, which is uh, to me one of the all time great closers. Um, you have humorous rockers like Tom Stone Blues from the Buick Six and the title track. And, and then of course you have Like a Rolling Stone. I mean, arguably, you know, the most important song in rock history. It won our 60s tournament, uh, the greatest song of the 60s. Uh, it's just a brilliant song. Uh, it has this great poetic lyrics uh, brilliant and brilliant organ playing, uh, you know, from Al Cooper, who, who amazingly made it up on the spot and had never played organ before, or, or so legend has it anyway. 
Um, uh, there's a, a lot of myth making with Dylan, so uh, you know it's hard to know exactly what's true and what's not. It's, it's in some cases, uh, you know, I've talked before about his lyrics, how 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 brilliant they are, and and how even when they you don't know what he's talking about, they just sound important. And uh, yeah, great musical musical support on this album from from Al Cooper, and also just a brilliant blues guitarist, Michael Bloomfield. Uh, from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Uh, if you want to hear an awesome guitar track that you'll never hear on the radio, check out East to West by the uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It's uh, from 1966 and, and it still sounds ahead of its time even today. Just great stuff. And remember, that was before Hendrix and before Cream. But back to this album, uh, you, you know, we have like a Rolling Stone, but and I mentioned before, you know, the only... I guess negative I would say to the album is, is that the songs are very long and can be a bit repetitive, uh, maybe at times. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong, Ballad of a Thin Man is atmospheric, is all get out and, and pretty great on the whole, but did he need to repeat the punchline like a hundred times? You know, this song is also a prime example of how Dylan's sardonic lyrics uh, sometimes betray a mean streak as well. Uh, cue it up, Larry. Let, let's, let's check out out of a thin man. And you know something is happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Now, you see this one-eyed midget shouting the word now. And you say, for what reason? And he says, how? Say, what does this mean? And he screams back, you're a cow. Give me some milk or else go home. And you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Another thing about Dylan is, you know, no one had ever heard a voice like that on the radio before, right? I mean, a lot of people don't think he's much of a singer. I personally like his voice because it, it kind of, the emotion, you know, gets through to me. But I know there are plenty of people who don't get Dylan, who don't like, you know, think he can't sing. And so, but that was groundbreaking in its own way, right? I mean, the fact that this guy got on the radio and... And like a Rolling Stone was the number two hit. And uh, another barrier broken down was, you know, it's a six minute song. It was a, it was a huge hit. You know, before that, uh, songs all had to be edited down to two, three minutes. So that kind of changed things right there. Just those two things alone. So, you know, 
the importance of this album really can't be overstated. Uh, it's kind of pretty much influenced almost anything that's happened since, either directly or indirectly. Uh, but you know, for me, you know, I I had this as the winner. Uh, there's other great songs, melodic ballads like "It Takes a, a Lot to Laugh," "It Takes a Train to Cry," "Queen Jane Approximately," which which I raved about in the intro. Uh, just like Tom Thumb Blues. Uh, so it's it's just a lot of great stuff here. Um, and another cool album cover, uh, you know, just Dylan looking cool. He, he probably never looked cooler. And so very much a contrast to what you see on King Crimson, but, but kind of iconic in its own way. Um, so I voted for Bob Dylan, but uh, I love both albums. Uh, I've been outvoted in this case. So uh, Keith and Larry... Tell me why in the court of the Crimson King should uh, should move forward. For for me, sixty one revisited is a great album. I think I mentioned in the the first rent. It's not my favorite Dylan album. That's probably Blood on the Tracks. I think Dylan's vocals and Blood on the Tracks are better. Speaking of you know his vocals being an acquired taste, um, and look, I think Dylan's lyricism, his like sardonic biting wit it's probably unequaled, right? If you really listen to it, but there's just something about this, you know, the, the vocals and the songs that it, yes, I appreciate them, but I don't love it as much as I love in the court of the Crimson King, which as you mentioned, is like the, the progenitor of prog rock. Like, I mean, this was it, like you never heard anything like this before, you know, from this led to, to, Yes, and ELP, obviously, because of, of Lake and Genesis and, and even like later, like Mars Volta. I mean, there's so much that comes from this. And later, you hear later Moody Blues in, in that, right? Like, yeah, you hear even Tool, right? A band as heavy as them. And you, just, you know, you hear, you hear <clears throat> jazz, you hear, you hear, you know, like you'd mentioned Sickness of uh, Rolling Stone, even on the radio. I mean, okay. Court of the Crimson King is like, what, 10 minutes? And, and after that is like 14 minutes, you know? Yes, there were songs like that before, but of a piece and of a mood, like in Court of the Crimson King, for me, this wasn't that close. But that's also because I, I definitely am not as much of a Dylan fan as many others are. So this wasn't all that close for me, even though I appreciate Dylan. King Crimson, I, I, I like, like you mentioned, Scott, like I go back to this album. Highway 61, yeah. If I hear like a song on the radio, I probably won't turn it off, but I'm probably not going to go back and put it on. So you're not a Dylanologist, huh? I'm not a Dylanologist, no. <laughs> yeah, for me, this was a this was a bit of a brutal matchup, and you know, I talked in the the prior matchup was like individual, like the the um, you know the uniqueness of how brilliant they were. This, this is a matchup of sort of albums that are as important right as any matchup that that will have maybe you know maybe velvet underground matches the importance of of these two albums in terms of what it sort of led to um but you know dylan sort of spawned the whole era right the whole everything that came after dylan was sort of a you know in part owed sort of reverence to dylan and 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 court sort of you know, has its own path of music where it sort of, you know, owes a lot to, to, um, to court. And, and it, a lot of the music that I, you know, like heavier, um, like a lot of the metal 
like genres owe a lot to King Crimson and like there's prog, there's prog rock, but then there's sort of all the evolutions that led from that. And to me, there's sort of a cool aspect of like looking back at stuff that's 50 years old and, um, you know, and seeing sort of what it, what it, it led to like, and still is, you know, you, where you can sort of see the line of sight from what that, what they did then to what you're hearing sort of in the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, Dylan is sort of unique, right? It, you have to, you have to commit, like part of what makes Dylan, it's, so first, right, both court, like court has 21st century schizoid which was a, which became like part of hip hop lore through Kanye and Dylan almost invented the diss track, right? <laughs> so both, you, you, could, you could almost say he invented rap too with subterranean homesick. Yeah, groups. yeah. So I mean, like he's like, so they're both sort of, you know, have very modern, you know, uh, aspects. Dylan is more, Dylan musically is more dated, right? It came, obviously it came first. Um, you need to commit to, because part of Dylan is the lyrics, right? And you need to commit to listening to the lyrics, which you don't have to do with a lot of music. It's not about sort of what you're, what they're telling you. And Dylan is sort of, you have to commit to, to get the full experience. You have to listen to, <laughs> you have to understand what he's, what he's saying. So like musically, chord is sort of a more compelling, I think. And, and again, I go back and forth in part, like, Court has f four songs that are almost perfect songs, right? And and Moonchild is sort of this, you know, <laughs> this filler. It's but again, it's it's almost like that intermission. Like you again, I told you guys, I was listening to the Swans today, right? And like half of the albums are are, are intermissions that sort of you know Moonchild sort of in you know, almost invented. So anyway, Chord is great. Highway 61 was, you know, was transformational in a, in a lot of ways. But, but I do think there's sort of a, a little bit more um, relevance, like in, from just musically today to, to Chord, that, you know, it, it moves on by a hair. They're both as transcendent, sort of listens as you can as you can have because again everything like there's such a, a legacy that they left um it makes you know it's a really hard pick for that reason yeah i agree uh so king crimson will move on though and i, I agree with larry actually blood on the tracks is also my favorite dylan album and i think it's his best vocal performance although you know it's quote unquote his divorce album so not exactly a fun listen, but yeah. uh, but a great fun. album. Uh, but but I, I think uh, Highway 61 is the more important album overall in, in his discography uh, for for that era and what it signaled and and, and what it led to. Again, uh, it's the so, first it's the first album in this whole tournament, right? Right. I think it. I think it predates everything, right? Thank you. Right. Uh, yeah, I think you are right. Actually, yeah, yeah, it does. And let's just be clear, you know, best Dylan vocal performance, 
still kind of a low bar. Yeah, relatively speaking. Relative. <laughs> anyway, on to the next matchup. We we got a lot better singers in this. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. We we uh, and we this is two West Coast bands. Couldn't be more different. The Doors at number six with their self-titled debut album, and the Beach Boys, uh, the number three seed with Pet Sounds. <laughs> The Beach Boys, God Only Knows. Again, they're going up against The Doors, self-titled debut album. <laughs> Pretty funny to think that uh, "Girl We Couldn't Get Much Higher" was considered so controversial back then that Ed Sullivan insisted they don't play it. They, you know, they not sing that part, which they then promised they anyway. wouldn't, and they did anyway, and they were banned from the show. Contrast that from the Nine Inch Nails song we played in the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Standards have changed a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I spoke quite a bit about The Doors in, in prior episodes. Uh, you know, they were just a great band with that unique chemistry. The, the keyboards, obviously, very prominent, which made them stand out. Jim Morrison, just like the ultimate rock god, you know, and just so charismatic and, and kind of crazy also, but also kind of underrated as a singer. Uh, you know, he could do this uh, kind of Frank Sinatra-like croon, but also scream his head off and... Uh, and just was great at both styles and, and sometimes would do them within the same song or, or you know, back and forth. And uh, and then Robbie Krieger was was very underrated guitar player. He, he actually wrote the majority of Light My Fire. Uh, John Densmore, very solid on drums, kind of had jazzy sound to him. Uh, this album is just phenomenal. Uh, and I'm looking at the track listing here and I don't know how, how familiar a lot of people are with these songs. I, I think if you're my age, if you're our age, right? 50-ish, then you and you grew up on classic rock radio, then you know most of this album, right? But if you're younger, you probably only know maybe three, three, you know, the three biggest songs on the album, maybe a couple more. So that kind of shows how things have shifted over the years where the Doors profile maybe is, is not what it was. And I think you can say that about a lot of you know bands from that era. And I, I've kind of riffed on this before, but Tons of great songs. Soul Kitchen, The Crystal Ship, 20th Century Fox, Alabama Song, Backdoor Man, the Willie Dixon cover. Uh, uh, Alabama Song was also a cover song from a, a much older song. Uh, 
end of the night, take it as it comes. These, these are all songs that, that I used to hear all the time. And, and then, of course, there's the, the three ultimate classics. You heard one of them, Light My Fire. And, uh, you know, then there's Break On Through, which, which we, uh, we talked a lot about in the prior episode. And we're going to play a little bit of it here. Break On Through, oh, Another interesting thing is, uh, you know, she gets, you know, that part she gets, she gets, that's supposed to be she gets high, but they, they didn't want to play it, uh, you know. Yeah, I learned that through my uh, listening through um, through tit- my title uh, app, that she gets high. Yeah, yeah more, recent, gets high. More, re- more recent versions of the song have kind of, because they actually record it like that and, and kind of cut it out. The more recent version of the song, you, you can actually hear how it was originally intended. Uh, but uh, I don't know if I like. I don't know which I like better. She gets. Yeah, like, I kind of like the original because I'm just in, used to it. You know. Yeah, I, 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 the, the the unknown, right? The unknown. No, exactly. She gets what? Yeah. What does she get? Yeah. I don't know what she gets. Yeah. She gets Sometimes high. it's best to leave it to the imagination. Absolutely. Sometimes. So that was the opener, and then we're going to talk about the. Closer, the end. You know, I, I think if there's one word that best describes the doors, it's atmospheric. I mean, they they really could conjure an atmosphere, and uh, you know, the end is just apocalyptic. And it was, uh, you know, you, a lot of people remember it from you know Apocalypse Now, where it was used so memorably. So uh, we're gonna play a little bit of that right now as well. Or for my fraternity's hell night, but Apocalypse Now. Yes, back to hell night. No idea. Sorry to, sorry to open these old wounds again. <laughs> When the time comes and it's the end of the world, 
that's a song that should be playing. <laughs> I get a, I get a producer credit for that one by adding I I added a cough was, metal that was sort of um, that was totally that was we totally meant for that to be uh, it added for, it added to the I felt it sort of needed a atmospheric we're adding atmosphere yes yeah. exactly. <laughs> anyway what a phenomenal song uh, you know very seductive, dramatic, hypnotic, all those words you can use. Again, it kind of remind me a little bit like a, a West Coast Velvet Underground who we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, Very much and, has the, uh, you know, Venus and Furs type of femme fatale vibe to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. almost, you know, I almost forget that the doors were that, you know, early in the, in the 60s, right? They were that was what sixty seven, right? Yeah. So it was still albums in sixty seven. Yeah, Days so it was, was the same. It yeah. sort of it was sort of concurrent with Velvet and you know some of the other you know sort of contemporary with a lot of the things that um yeah again it, they their their influences is pretty ob is pretty obvious but. When you think back to 1960, you know, to the time period, um, it was pretty unique. And yeah, I mean, you wonder if those bands knew about each other, right? I mean, the Doors were very influential. You can name bands like certain Alice Cooper songs, The Stooges, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen, New Water, you know, tons of goth bands. I, I think The Cult, the, you know, they, they definitely influence a lot of these bands. Uh, well, we already no, talked about Al, Al Cooper with Jimi Hendrix, right? No, Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh, that was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> it's late. I'm a little. I'm a little tired here. But yeah, that was, that was what, actually. One of the things I think you, you people don't necessarily appreciate that's not about the Doors. The album itself is there's there's no there's no filler on this album. It's a tight album, despite the fact that the end is a long song. It's like 12 minutes long, but there's no filler. Every song is phenomenal. And Jim Morrison is definitely an underrated vocalist. I mean, just even the range that you heard in the cuts that we played, like you mentioned, he's capable of phenomenal singing. He's capable of like the guttural scream. He's, you know, he, he has range up and down. It, it really is amazing that he was able to do that with and with, without necessarily being like considered to be a phenomenal singer and you know very much underrated for for whatever reason compared to the band that they're up against where you listen to the harmonies and the vocals and that's that's the first thing i think that you think of when you think of the beach boys yeah i mean i, I think the beach boys above all else were, were a vocal band a vocal group uh you know, they didn't even play on, on a lot of these songs in that, the, you know, they used the Wrecking Crew, the the, uh, the legendary session musicians, uh, you know, that played with Phil Spector and all these other great musicians. Uh, yeah, other, other great artists. Uh, Pet Sounds, where do, where do we start on this? I mean, it was, uh, it, it's such a singular album. It, it kind of, it was, you know, the Beach Boys were known as this fun surf group, right? And uh, which wasn't entirely accurate, but that was their their rep. And this was uh, with help from from lyricist Tony Asher. It was a much more introverted, personal album. Uh, you know, we, he talked about, you know, his quest for love and acceptance, and, 
and topics such as loneliness and, and longing and alienation and, and, you know, and the difficulty of growing up. And uh, so it was a far cry from those perfect summers and the surface thuds and the hot rods that, that he had sung about, uh, you know, previously, uh, you know, the, what was it? Teenage symphonies to God is, is this phrase that, that always comes up to me, you know, how, how Brian described it and uh, listen to God only knows, you know, that clip we just played. I mean, it, that's what it sounds like. I mean, it really does. And uh, their vocals were second to none. I will put them up against any group in the history of rock and roll. Um, Brian Wilson was, was the primary singer on this album, uh, which he, he hadn't really been before. At times he was, but this album, he is definitely the dominant instrument, uh, definitely the dominant uh, lead vocalist. Uh, he does a great job. The harmonies are great. You know, Mike Love obviously chimes in with some leads as well, like in uh, Sloop John B. Carl Wilson with one of the great, all-time great lead vocals on God Only Knows. Uh, he was the most soulful singer in, in the band and, and, a, and a great singer in his own right. Uh, God, you know, Paul McCartney, I think, called God, God Only Knows uh, the best song ever written. And, and as we, I think we mentioned previously how the Beatles were, were spurred on by this album to to create Sgt. Peppers and, and their future masterpieces. And, and there was always that, that competition between the two, which, which kind of drove Brian Wilson crazy, literally trying to top this album and compete with the Beatles. With the, uh, the, Beatles heard, the Beatles heard the Beach Boys play this before Revolver came out and it, didn't, it actually influenced Revolver too. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. And, and Pet Sounds was influenced because they heard Rubber Soul and were like, right. we, need to, we need to step up our game as well. So it is, it is pretty fucking phenomenal. Exactly. It's a whole like, it goes from Dylan to, the, to Rubber Soul. To, it's, yeah, it's a whole healthy competition in it. Although it wasn't healthy for Brian because he was one guy competing with three guys. So uh, yeah. not, not, not easy on his part. Uh, but uh you know, the, the thing is that the album wasn't really a success at the time compared to, to what they had done before, even though it, it's such a classic now, you know, it's one, you know, it's, it's almost any greatest albums of all time, Paul, and this will rank very high. It, they weren't uh, ready. For, they weren't ready for it. They weren't ready for it. Exactly. Yeah. But it had great singles, too. Like I mentioned, Sloop John B and, uh, and God Only Knows and, and also, you know, the Pop Perfection. Uh, that we're going to play right now, wouldn't it be nice? It's mixed, you know, in terms of happy as the album, is, right? It's sort of that. Yeah. This this album, it's 
it has the Beach Boys like sound, but yet it is a sad album. It is tinged with longing. Like, you know, yeah. be nice. God only knows. You still believe in me. I know there's an answer. Sloop Jumpy, all of them are tinged with this like longing and sadness and, and yeah. desire for something that's not there or just out of reach. And it's it, it that's what makes it so genius is that you know if you listen if you just listen to Wouldn't It Be Nice, it's super poppy and sunny and and great. And there's this sadness underneath it about not being able to be together. And it's you know it, it's kind of heartbreaking and you can kind of feel Brian Wilson like starting to to teeter into what eventually you know took him away for so long in this like competing like I'm part of this super popular band and yet I've got all this stuff that needs to come out and I can't quite reconcile all of it together and that's what the genius of that became Pet Sounds is. You have to imagine Morrissey somehow was birthed from <laughs> from that right the, the dichotomy of like the music and the, and the lyrics you know. I think the song that the theme song of the album was probably I just wasn't made for these times. Right. That's how he felt, you know, and yeah. uh, trying to fit in and, and, and something was, was a little off. And uh, yeah. So we're going to cue, uh, cue up. You still believe in me to kind of showcase their vocals again. <laughs> Again, the Beach Boys just had incomparable vocals, and this is just a great album. Uh, it's one of those albums, right? It has, again, spectacular individual songs, like we talked about with other albums, like OK Computer, but it's really been meant, was conceived and is meant to be listened to as a whole. Even though The Doors is spectacular from start to finish, I don't think it has that that whole you know album uh, world unto itself kind of feel that Pet Sounds does. I I don't think it, emotionally you connect to the album quite as as much. Um, so for those reasons, uh, I think Pet Sounds is is a clear winner here, and I think it's uh, you know it's a it's a contender to, to take the whole the whole tournament. So uh, what do you guys want to add? I, you're, you you nailed it. Like Pet Sounds is an album and, and we talked about the emotional depth beneath it. The Doors is phenomenal, but The Doors is a collection of singles and, and they're all awesome singles. And again, even the album tracks are amazing, but it doesn't have the sound. It doesn't have the competition that they had with the Beatles spurring both of them to greater heights going on. I mean, The Doors are probably a competition with, you know, the entire world, but that's, that's just because that's who The Doors You are. know who they were actually in competition with? With Love. <laughs> we talked about it now. They were both on Electro Records. They were both from the West Coast, and you got to listen to some of their other stuff. It's 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 definitely a lot heavier than Forever Changes. So just an FYI, the Doors they they almost get punished like today because the, there was a sort of there is an ominousness to the Doors and a darkness to the Doors that 
at it in its time, probably I'm guessing it was more menacing right at the end, um, the way it sounds at the time was different than it feels today because, you know, it's, it, it's just not that many. <laughs> it just doesn't have the same, um, you know, in context of, you know, what, what came after it. But, but then you realize, you know, what it meant at the time and sort of what it led to. To me, the end is sort of where the doors are different, you know, made it, um, that was their differentiating sort of song. Break on through was in, in some ways, you know, the, their intro to the doors, but the end is sort of this, you know, haunting sort of sprawling song that did lead to a lot of other other stuff. And again, it was 1967. It was, you know, it, there was a uniqueness to it. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in this, the other, when talking about Credence, how Fogarty was, you know, in front of his bandmates and it stands out, like Morrison belongs way in front. <laughs> like, nobody's going to say, Jim, you know, maybe you should step, step back in the cover. <laughs> because, the, you, know, the, you know, the central theme of, of the album is that Jim is just this monstrous sort of figure. I'm looking uh, at the cover, and his head is bigger than the the entire body. The other three, the other, three. Like the, the other guy. So, <laughs> but you know, nobody said you know it's, it it fits. You know, it fits the doors. But the um, other guys were were really good too. They were great. They yeah, great, great, yeah, they were great They were great. Music. They added a lot behind Jim, but yeah, it's almost like um, the experience with Jimi Hendrix, right? Like. You have great musicians behind them, but there's a front man who's clearly um, is, you know, is the show. Uh, but Pet Sounds, Pet, you know, Pet Sounds is sort of this album that it's a cohesive, and to Larry's point, right, it's just, it's on the, sur on the surface, it's sort of a continuation of the Beach Boys, but underneath, um, you know, it's just dark. It's much darker and more depressing. And, um, you know, it is sort of, it, it's part of the evolution of music, right? And and the Beach Boys too, like there is a, a continuum of the Beach Boys from, you know, 66 to, to music today that, you know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, one-to-one, -one, but there are influences that you see that you can sort of hear in in certain pockets of you know of alternative music of pop music um, that that sort of start you know in, in some ways Pet Sounds was a pivot point um, for you know album rock. All right, so that's that's it for this matchup. The Doors again, another phenomenal album, but. But this one was, was clear cut to us. Pet Sounds is moving on, which brings us to our last matchup of round two. Uh, two favorites of ours Van Morrison, the number seven seed with Astral Weeks, versus the Velvet Underground, at the number two seed, the Velvet Underground, and Nico. Standing in the sand 
track from Astro Weeks. What a vocal from Van the Man. And it's going up against the Velvet on the Ground and Nico, the number two seed. Like a perfect Sunday morning song, and uh, excuse it, me, I'm 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 putting uh, cream cheese on my bagel right now. <laughs> Although it is funny, when, whenever I hear Sunday morning and I listen to it, and it does, it is the perfect early morning song. I always imagine someone who like heard that and is like, "That's such a lovely, beautiful song." I think I'm going to go buy Velvet Underground and Nico, and then they play it, and then they get past Sunday morning, they're like. Oh my God! What have I done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the you know the people who uh, who buy the one hit and the, the album's nothing like it, right? <laughs> it's funny, right? It's Sunday morning, but it's like two p.m. on Sunday, and you're just waking up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. and your night started Thursday. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It's a great song, right? It's it's called it's Sunday morning, but you it's really Tuesday morning, and you just <laughs> didn't realize it's not Sunday. I mean, this is the Velvet Underground, so we we are going to talk about drugs. 
but 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 we're gonna start with Van Van and Van. Larry, it's just, just I have to. I mean, we haven't talked about your spreadsheet yet in this episode. So we, <laughs> is is Week's spreadsheet uh album, or or you probably knew about it before? No, absolutely not. Astrolabes is because when I when I subscribed to Rolling Stone when I was a teenager, they did their hundred best albums of the last twenty years. Which I think was the it was really the 100 best albums since Rolling Stone had been out because Pet Sounds wasn't on it. Because um, Pet, yeah, Pet Sounds came out before Rolling Stone started publishing it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 67, right? Yeah. Because they only started doing albums. And, and Astral Weeks is like six or seven or, or whatever. It's, it was definitely in the top 10 of that, of that list of Rolling Stone. And I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of any of the songs. The only Van Morrison song I think I knew was Brown Eyed Girl and Movie Dance. And it took me a while, but eventually I bought the album. And then, so no, it's definitely not a spreadsheet album. It was a, I, I, this, is, this is my Desert Island disc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, to me too. It's one of those things where, you know, Van Morrison is very well known. Uh, everyone knows, you know, Brown Eyed Girl, of course, but other songs like uh, Moon Dance, Domino, Wild Night. Tupelo Honey, I mean, so many classic songs. Uh, Gloria, back in his them days, when, you know, in the 60s before he went solo. But unless you've never heard this album on the radio, like if you're not a Van Morrison fan or, or, or a big music person, you probably have never heard this album. And it's amazing. It's, it's one of those uh, phenomenal albums. It's, uh, you know, so many great songs although it's not really about songs either right it's you know it's more about a, it's a mood album it's about a vibe and uh, and the word that always comes to mind for me with van in general and this album in particular is mystical there's just a, a magical mystical quality to it and uh i think also he's he's one of those guys he was like 23 years old at the time when he made this album and he's just he's an old soul like i can never picture van morrison being young and, and this album does not sound like it it was made by a 23 year old you know and uh it's a very jazzy sound the the, the vocals are very free flow free flowing the lyrics are very poetic uh you know i think we mentioned previously this was like recorded in, in like a whirlwind 48 hours with some with some jazz musicians who deserve deserve a lot of credit for the you know the excellent music uh but you know and van i think is is one of my all-time favorite singers and this is one of the all-time vocal performances on this album you know i mentioned eddie better you know if i would make my like top 10 all-time vocal performances on any album this is way up there you know and uh and you heard that in that clip we played just uh it's kind of just very spellbinding it's, it's a very spiritual album um, so I, I love this album. It's one of the, it definitely one, a, a contender for my all time favorite album. Uh, so I think it's going to be again, a, one of those tough outs in this tournament and it's, it is going to win this matchup. Although, uh, I think we do have one to center, although I think he's still undecided really, uh, he'll let us know in, in a little bit. Um, we're going to move on to the Velvet Underground. Um, I think I mentioned previously how the Velvet Underground and Nico is like alternative rock 101, right? It's like anything that happened in alternative rock afterwards, you you kind of heard on this album. Uh, you know, you heard the the beautiful lullaby. Uh, you know, Sunday morning there were the the the, uh, 
songs about Lou, you know, with Lou Reed talking about scoring drugs or shooting up, you know, like I'm waiting for the man and heroin. And then you have those Nico songs and, uh, and, you know, Nico just doesn't sound like anyone else. Like she's so unique and, and she wasn't really even in the band. It was kind of, she was kind of foisted upon them by their benefactor, Andy Warhol, who painted the famous banana cover. But, you know, I love the three Nico songs and, uh, Larry, why don't you cue up my favorite one of the three, uh, All Tomorrow's Parties. similar to me anyway uh, so. I, agree, I agree I was thinking what the end the end and velvet there's sort of a, a parallel there and in in very you know again their influences are somewhat you know branch off from there but there's definitely um, some similarity there I mean you have East Coast versus West Coast obviously the velvet on the grand we're, we're, we're like Tupac more... and big like Tupac and biggie <laughs> yeah. Do you is more decadent with the lyrics, and uh, you know they didn't have a, a front man as charismatic as Morrison, so they were never going to be popular. But uh, you know, in terms of influence, well, you know, I always, everyone always has to mention the famous Brian Eno quote, right? That uh, not a lot of people bought the album, but everyone who did started a band, right? So <laughs> that that kind of shows how influential it was, and you know, either you a band, to- either a, either they started a band or a cult. Yeah. And, they played, and they played all tomorrow's parties. <laughs> or became a music nerd. <laughs> the, uh, you know, he had, uh, in addition to Reed, though, they, like the band was perfect for him. You know, Sterling Morrison was, was his guitar foil. John Viola had those crazy viola sounds, which really kind of dominated their sound. Uh, and later he was replaced by Doug Yule, who did, uh, you know, a lot of good stuff with them as well. And even Maureen Tucker, right? Just having a female drummer in itself was revolutionary. And she had that, that thumping beat that kind of launched the beat of alternative rock. You know, it was, uh, she was great too. The whole band was great. And, uh, you know, this is a classic album. Um, 
it's like we talked about in episode one, it's a little abrasive at times. It's not for everybody. It's it's definitely an underground album, you know, like listen to Venus and Furs or, or the last two songs. And, uh, you know, you, you may clear, clear a room if, uh, if it's not <laughs> you know, an audience that's, that's ready for, for that kind of, uh, you know. Not this room, but. Not other- this room, but, uh, uh, you know, some, if it's filled with ears less attuned to, to some more experimental stuff for sure. Uh, it, it could almost, Larry, like um, the vampire show. <laughs> it's it's all it's like a soundtrack for like a mockumentary. Yeah. For for vampires. Or <laughs> Shadows. Yeah, for sure. You know, in in but you you touched on on Nico's vocals, which is just another ridiculously unique thing about this song. Like. Nico's vocals are so bizarre. It's almost like they you had to you you couldn't invent that. Like you you had to find somebody to be able to do that. Like yeah. nobody said, oh, let's just have somebody here, lead singer for a couple of tracks and sound like that. Like right. And she's a model. And she's a model. And and you know, they were like there were all these various like relationships going on or non-relationships going on between all of them. And it, it you couldn't have put all this stuff together in any other way and come up with anything other than, than what the Velvet Underground and Nico eventually became, which is like you said, it was like the forerunner, forerunner of alternative and some, in some cases, a little forerunner of, of punk. Um, it's experimental, it, it's dark. That's why Sunday Morning is such a bizarre <laughs> opener to this album because nothing else on this album sounds anything remotely close to that. No. Uh, Nico almost sounds like she was concocted in a lab, and like yeah. she almost sounds like an like an alien, like yeah. almost inhuman. And how do you sound? Yet there's something very cool about her voice to me, anyway. Well, you can't she, she sounds like a like a hundred people together, right? Like she doesn't sound like one. <laughs> there is. We talk about goth, right? That's a very goth sound. You know, like you could draw a line from this to the cure or, or any number of bands. Yeah. It's almost like she was auto-tuned before there was auto-tuned. Like it's her her just something about her vocal. It's just otherworldly. Yeah. That's a good word. So uh, Keith, you were I think the lone dissenter here, or have you changed your mind? Um Larry, cure heroin.
just when the blood, I mean, it, there's nothing like that. I, like, there's nothing like that on Astral. <laughs> and look, I get it. I mean, like, Astral is a, like, it's an end to end piece, right? Like, you put on Astral at the beginning, it's uniform throughout, and it's spectacular. Like, as an album, Astral is a perfect it's one of the perfect albums right <laughs> it really but we should just start it from the beginning and then play the album exactly you can play the whole it's 47 minutes you can play the whole 47 minutes and it all like you know it, it fits together but it's an it's a it's an individual album whereas again velvet on the ground is the birth of something completely new and you know, I go back and forth between like I, I've I've listened to Astral Weeks probably five times more than I listened to Velvet. You know, and from that standpoint, you know, I, I can make an argument for saying Astral wins, but you know, Velvet was just such an important. There's an importance to it that blows away Astral, right? Like you take Astral out of the picture. And the future of music isn't much different. And whereas you take Velvet out of the picture and like, who knows what the hell, you know, we have <laughs> ahead of us. And, you know, a lot of it was great. You know, a lot of that, what came out from Velvet was, was like needed um, and, and great. And so, and the, again, from a, you know, from a track standpoint, there are great songs, right? There are great, literally like Sunday morning I'm waiting for the man Venus and Furs run 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 like you go all tomorrow's parties heroin there she goes again I mean I'll be your mirror there like it does it's an incredible album and and the, the combination of song like the songscape with just how just groundbreaking it was to me like edges it a little bit over Ashley Weeks even though Ashley Weeks is probably the better overall you know listen and the one you'd go to more um, but I'm sure you guys agree like like there is a there is a difference in sort of you know where each album sits in the, and yeah, I mean, why and where they for sure if you uh, I'm sorry go ahead the smash up. like like out of all of the round two for the 60s, it was by far the toughest, but I think out of all the round two for all of the decades that we do, this is the toughest one for me. I mean, because like I said, Astral's my desert island disc. So far. <laughs> so far. No, I think even, yeah, but I think even looking ahead, it'll be interesting to see if I, if I come to regret saying that, but Velvet is one, you know, is one of my probably top 10 favorite albums too. This is a really, really <laughs> tough one. Um, and yeah, there are totally different uh, sides of the spectrum of music. There are totally different vibes, totally different moods that you need to be to be in. Astral has this unique, jazzy riff sound where literally you can tell that Van Morrison came up with these songs, brought in a bunch of unbelievable jazz and rock musicians, and was like, "All right, just here's I'm going to play a couple of chords and just keep up and." Do what you got to do, and they magic over like three. Rounds. It's like it's there's a, a little bit of a like Electric Ladyland is similar in that, right? There's Jimmy, 
like leading these other band of great, you know, uh, musicians in in sort of you know this jazzy in this jazzy funky way, um, and Van Morrison doing the same thing just with his voice, you know, yeah. as the as the lead. And I think you could say, you know, if you can criticize the album, and I, I've, you know, some people I've kind of argued about about this, and they would say that there's no songs on the album, right? Astral Week, it's not song based. Yeah. I would say that's not true. There are songs, there are great songs, but it is kind of like you said, it's more a vibe record. There's not, it's not about the songwriting so much as the performances and uh, and what they captured, you know, while vibing and jamming and, and kind of just working these things out, you know, it's, uh, but like, it's one of those lightning in a bottle albums from a guy who I think has a ton of other great albums, but none quite, you know, at this level. It's, it's like what we said about OK Computer with Radiohead for me anyway. Um, so, you know, I, and I've never done heroin, but I don't think I need to. I could just kind of listen to Lou Reed talk about it. <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know, you kind of feel like, I mean, I've never done it, but he captures it, you know, even without having done it. Like, it's pretty amazing, you know, how they, they did that. And, uh, that's probably the signature song on an album filled with signature songs. And, and it is a great album and it's a tough out, but, you know, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here and, and only, only the best of the best are surviving. I, I do believe that that belongs in that conversation. Personally, I, I you know, Larry and I prefer Astral Weeks. It, it's just an album we love more. It means more to us. But all due respect to the Velvet Underground, and uh, and that pretty much concludes uh, this episode. Uh, we we tried something a little new this episode. We we kind of added music clips, uh, you know, within the the commentary. I, I tried something myself as well. I think in doing the clips, I I kind of tried to script it out a little bit more, which I did for the first two matchups, but I abandoned it after those two because it was frankly it was taking way too long <laughs> so you know we're we're like we're like you know van morrison and astral weeks we're just vamping here you know we're figuring it out so uh anyway we're gonna conclude this episode by uh by talking about who won these matchups and and who's gonna be in the round three uh so to recap uh revolver from the beatles uh beat Electric Ladyland from Jimi Hendrix. That was a number one over a number nine. Uh, number five in the court of the Crimson King beat Bob Dylan. Highway 61 revisited as I was outvoted. However, we were unanimous that the Beach Boys, the number three seed Pet Sounds, would beat number six seed The Doors' self-titled debut, which is nevertheless a classic album. And then we have Astral Weeks, Larry and I outvoting Keith to beat Velvet Underground and Nico, the number two seed. So we will have Revolver versus In the Court of the Crimson King and Pet Sound versus Astral Weeks. Uh, have a good night, guys. It's been a lot of fun, and we'll see you all soon as we hit the 70s. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>